Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Dyslexia Coffee Talk. I'm Ashley, here with Enid, and today we have Dr. Jill Allor with us. She's a professor in the Department of Teaching and Learning in the Simmons School of Education and Human Development. And she's here today to spend some time with us. Welcome, Jill. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Alicia <laughs> loved meeting you in Portland and just could not stop talking about you. And she was like, we have to get Jill on Coffee Talk. We have to get her on Coffee Talk. So we're so thrilled to connect with you and have you here. Well, I enjoy talking with her too. She kept coming back to my booth and, and we would have another conversation and then I'd see her a couple hours later, she'd come back. So we, we enjoyed getting to know one another. Well, I know one of the things that she was so passionate about, I mean, excuse me, her connection with you is you really spoke to her passion, which is early literacy and early intervention with children. And that's something that we don't talk about, I think, my opinion, a whole lot in our community and something that we need to be talking about a whole lot more. So um, how did you get started with or, or where, where did your passion come from for early literacy and early intervention? Well, my passion really started when I was teaching school and I realized that I, I was in a resource classroom. So I had students with disabilities, including students with dyslexia in my class. And looking around my classroom, I realized everybody here, except for maybe one or two students is here for reading. And why didn't they get help sooner? So this idea of providing that help early on is so very important and not waiting. I would be so frustrated because by the time students came to me, they were already had low self-esteem, they were frustrated and they were behind. And then we had to play catch up. And if you can start right early, it makes so much more sense. And then as I've gone through my career and read the research and been involved in conducting research, it is just so very clear that the earlier you start, the better off you are. It's never too late. Never, ever too late. No. The earlier you start, it's just so much easier. I shared with you when we spoke yesterday about, you know, my our own story here with my family of my son hitting the wall when he was barely seven years old. He was approaching the end of first grade and how the school that he was in said to me at the time that they had known that he was struggling from the beginning of kindergarten, even though all of his report cards in kindergarten and first grade say what an accomplished reader he's becoming. But I think it really took your breath away when I shared with you that the school said to me that they had known he was struggling from the beginning of kindergarten and had no intention of telling me until he was in third grade. Yeah, that definitely blows my mind. The, the longer time has gone by, the, the more our measurement systems have been refined. There's, there's, there's just no reason not to identify kids early. We mm -hmm. can identify them very, very early. And you know, you know that a student is at risk. You don't necessarily know you have this definitive diagnosis in every single case. Mm -hmm. But in my view, you really don't even, you don't need a diagnosis to start providing intervention. Right. And let me jump in there really quickly. Please. Easter seals, no one knows about Easter seals. But Easter Seals is a remarkable nonprofit. They provide early intervention for anyone who needs it, no matter uh, you know uh, income, anything. They just call up Easter Seals, your local Easter Seals, if you are at all concerned about your child, because they will assess um, and provide early intervention if they're. So I just I'm always blown away with. I used to contract with Easter Seals. I love oh. the 
the organization and and truly you 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 are concerned about your child you call easter seals they come out and do an evaluation and they provide intervention services and they're all over the united states so it's really important that if you are concerned that you act and then there's always the uh regional center um as well but easter seals is just such a great way to immediately get help yes and as a teacher in a classroom you often just from observation you see well this child is struggling more than this child and how mm -hmm. do i provide them that extra support and a very quick screener will identify who is likely to struggle and mm -hmm. provide that support quickly and then you can determine by how well they respond to that extra support and if they respond super well and you can they pick up then good great that's wonderful but if they need more and more support then you want to continue to give them that support so they never have to be behind mm -hmm. that that is my goal with young kids is there's no reason particularly for a child with the classic dyslexia profile of an average to high iq and low word reading there's no reason for them to be behind. You need to provide support as soon as they enter school and really in preschool so they don't have to experience failure. They don't even have to know they're behind. So, well, if, oh, sorry, really quickly, if more preschool teachers understood uh, literacy and dyslexia, I think that would also be a really wonderful place to start there. And unfortunately, a lot of preschool teachers I come in contact with also aren't getting that in their training. Right. So you, you made a great point. And this is a question that I see happen in a lot of the community boards that parents ask. We get it on in our various groups and on our page from time to time. What, how young can you screen? How young is not too young to get a, or to screen for dyslexia or to do a dyslexia diagnosis? Well, really, I can tell you from my own daughter, I knew when she was about two that She's not learning sounds the way you would expect her to learn sounds. And I would do simple things like, um, listen, soap, when we were in the bathtub. And could she say soap? And she couldn't. Or what's the first sound in sun? And I would give her a model. You know, the first sound in sun is, so now what's the first sound in soap? And she couldn't provide. So there are some of those early skills that really do depend begin developing when they're two and three, mm -hmm. I would say a child should be screened by the time they're four, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and and there, But there's no reason why a good three-year-old teacher, they'll realize, oh, they're not doing so well on these skills. And you don't need a diagnosis, but you do need some support to make sure they learn those really important critical skills. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And rather, and the way that you learn your sounds, I mean, if you learn your letters quickly and easily, that's a great indicator. You're probably not going to struggle to learn to read. But if you're struggling to learn your letters, and even if you're a boy and you're not all that interested in that kind of thing, mm -hmm. you still are going to, you can still tell, are you learning how to read? Are you learning how to, to, to say those letter names and sounds mm -hmm. easily? And if you're not doing that easily, then you want some extra attention. It doesn't have to be some big event that you've got this diagnosis, but you need that extra attention. Definitely. So we've already had a question come in, and I know that this is a, also a very tricky question in our community. Mm -hmm. um, but do you have a recommendation for a good screener? 
There are a lot of good screeners out there. Um, I will post a few resources whenever we get done of some places you can look. I don't want to advocate necessarily one over the other. One that I particularly like is Acadians, which is now um, some Dibbles has divided. So it's mm. the, the new name for Dibbles is Acadians. They're oh, and Dibbles is my favorite. Mm -hmm. So yeah, that's interesting. I love Dibbles. I love and, and, and now it's under Acadian, so I kind of want okay. to go in the is, right direction. Is that all one thing now? Because I, I didn't even know about Dibbles Deep until Barton, uh, Susan Barton did a video on it. And I thought, mm -hmm. I loved Dibbles for so long. And then I found out there's a Dibbles Deep. So now it's just one name? Well, there's actually a couple different branches. So it kind of depends okay. on what's going on. Oh, I see, but it's all still Dibbles. Right. Not exactly. It's okay. a little complicated and I don't know okay. the ins and outs, but I know there are a couple of different resources there. And one is Acadiance, the other is Dibbles 8. So those are two different places. And Dibbles, I see somebody asking about how to spell that. It's Dynamic Indicators of Basic Early Literacy Skills, D-I-B-E-L-S. We're so yep. bad about all of our acronyms. Yeah, and Acadiance is just kind of what you would expect, A-C-A-D-I-E-N-C-E. Acadians. And they have benchmarks established. Another really great one is Easy CBM. So CBM yeah. stands for Curriculum Based Measurement. Yeah. And it's exciting for me to hear when I was in graduate school, these tools were just being developed. So now they're common and they're used everywhere and they're quick and easy. A teacher can administer them and, and they're, they're really great. Awesome. And they give benchmarks for that are age appropriate. So you can see what you should do. And there's a there's a preschool version as well. So there's a lot of good measures out there. One thing I was going to jump in and say about the um, early intervention is when I used to go in and do early intervention birth to three, I would say to the parents who had the family history, mom's mm -hmm. dyslexic, dad's dyslexic, let's just treat this child like a dyslexic child because if we know with family history, so let's give them extra exposure and extra bombardment. Um, put them on your lap when you rhyme with them because they can feel the rhythm of the, the language mm -hmm. and doing all of those things. But um, without a diagnosis, you know, obviously we know sometimes it's ear infections, but if we know we have a family history, the early intervention is so important. And, and we just kind of, I would always just say, let's just, because your family history is so strong, Let's treat this child like this. Give them extra exposure. It can't hurt. Yes, absolutely. You should start right away as soon as you see that there's any problem. And even if you don't see a problem, yeah, that's if it runs in your family, well, let's just make sure we're good to go here. You know, mm -hmm. it's kind of like taking vitamins. You know, you're mm -hmm. going to take these extra vitamins just to make sure that you don't end up with this problem because there's no reason to experience that. Mm -hmm. you know, a child with dyslexia, and we know from the, the neuroscience that's come out in recent years, that their brain patterns really are different. And you, you see it and you can detect these brain differences when they're five, for sure, maybe sooner. Huh? The, the research I'm familiar with is, is as young as five years old. So before at the beginning of first grade in one study, you could see these differences. And then by the end of first grade, when they had and when they'd had intensive intervention, those differences were disappearing. I mean, you really mm -hmm. saw a difference in the way that the kids' brains were wired. Mm -hmm. So they were starting to um, process sounds and print the same way that non-disabled kids were, or those mm -hmm. without those tendencies. Mm -hmm. And at that point, those students weren't mm -hmm. even necessarily identified as having a specific disability or having dyslexia. They were just identified as we have these problems. You know, we're mm -hmm. 
they, they were identified on both the screener kinds of tests and then it was verified by the, the fMRIs mm -hmm. Wow um what does the research show is possible if struggling readers receive inter, uh, intensive early intervention during first grade this is the part that I get really revved up about because we should be so much more optimistic than I think we, we are sometimes about a student with dyslexia. I hear oftentimes, you know, it's a lifelong disability. Well, yes, there may be some things that linger on through adulthood and that's gonna be different for different people. But most of these issues, mm -hmm. if we address them early, we can literally change the brain patterns and they can develop really well. And when you look at the percentage of the prevalence of being 10 to 20% of the population as to ha having dyslexia, that prevalence should be way down because mm -hmm. of this Great. question that you asked about what's possible. With the first grade intervention study that happens across first grade in small groups, like 30 to 40 minutes, four times a week or so, that kind of an intervention can get you down to what would correlate to the population less than 1% actually being below the 30th percentile. Oh. And this has happened in multiple studies for many years. I was looking at things to kind of refresh my memory on some of these studies before I sat down to do this. And some of this I was talking about, you know, clearly in 2004 is one of the major papers that I read. And some of this goes back to 1998. Mm -hmm. And we've known this a long time, that if you intervene early, the, the outlook is very optimistic. What we don't know and don't have as good at data on because it's extremely expensive and hard to get funded is how do these same kids look 20 years later? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There aren't the strong studies that really follow kids for a very long time. And that's because it's expensive and hard to get funded. Yeah. Yeah. I was telling you guys before we got on about first five of California. So those of us in California know, um, that, and I commend California that because they really took what you're saying and and made it into a, um, a program. Mm -hmm. We all know, sing to your kids, talk to your kids, play with your kids. So for 20 plus years, we've been we've had we've been exposed to those commercials, and so um, it's one of those things. It's so important, and the First Five Initiative has done a lot of really incredible things in our state um, to make that happen, to make uh, to give that awareness. And so I, I would exciting to hear. Because mm -hmm. there's so much you can do early on. Now, mm -hmm. to add a little bit of nuance about the, the impact of those that first grade intervention year, for some kids that intervening that first year is really enough to keep get them caught up and they stay up with their peers. For other kids, they're going to need continued support to stay up with their peers. But once you learn these basic skills and they are fully in, ingrained in you, you don't lose those. I mean, this is what, what you're then a good reader and you can move on to those other things. Well, and I think that's important too. When we talk about structured literacy, it literally is learning language concepts. Yes. So it's not a matter of a lifelong problem. If you learn them well and you master them, you have them. And then there is no issue. Mm -hmm. It's a lifelong, and this is just what you're saying, it's a lifelong problem if you don't learn those skills. So, mm -hmm. and, and so, and if we get in there early, it, you know, birth to, birth to five, um, and then, but we do have a question. Someone says, what if you passed early intervention and your child is nine years old and just recently diagnosed, where would you start? And where you would start is where your child is. So you need a really strong evaluation that shows what skills they know and what skills they don't know. And that's where you begin. Oftentimes 
almost all the students that I've worked with when they're struggling, where we start is short vowels. It's you, you know a lot of consonant sounds. Consonant sounds tend to be pretty easy to learn. Um, you'll have kids that will know and they may know that the U says uh in the word sign and they can say mm, but often what the problem is they can't blend those together. So well, we do know too with at nine we still have to go back to the phonological awareness skills. So yes. we can't even work on those phonic skills if they don't have rhyming. I, I get I just had, you know, in the last month, three kids that didn't have rhyming at nine. So yes. when you don't understand rhyming at nine, we have to go all the way back to rhyming before we can work on anything else. And so it's kind of like working with a three-year-old. It's the same principles. If they need that, you go back to that beginning and you give them as much as you can of that. And I'll add a nuance with the rhyming because you're really breaking that rhyming activity apart. The most important phonemic awareness skills for you to master are isolating a sound. So it's segmenting the sound. In the beginning, the easiest form of segmentation is what's the first sound in sign? Or what's the first sound in run? What's the first sound in kick? So that's the first step. And then but they the can't step, do that until they've rhymed. That's the problem. They, so what my problem is schools will jump ahead to segmentation before kids have learned rhyming and syllables. So that can be challenging because what I find is if they jump ahead to segmentation, just wanted to bring this up because it's an issue in the schools. Right, right. If they jump ahead to segmentation, they make segmentation the priority and the kids have no concept of syllables. So when I say, tell me um, how many syllables are in the word fun, they go, uh, mm. So the problem is, is if we jump ahead too quickly to sound segmentation, then they don't have syllables and then everything's a mess because now when we have to mm -hmm. have multisyllabic words, they can't. So well, what you're talking about is the sequence, I'm sorry, the sequence of development. And no. in, a, in a typical child, you certainly are able to you know, clap out the syllables in um, giraffe, Jennifer. Yeah. You, you can, the, the typical child learns to do that first. Yeah. Um, and, and a typical child is going to recognize fun, run, they rhyme. That's, that's what typically develops first. Mm -hmm. But we actually don't know for sure that you have to learn how to recognize those rhymes before you can jump to isolating the first sound or blending onset rhymes. So the, the two skills mm -hmm. I would give priority to, and I'm sorry to disagree just a little bit, but the two skills I would give priority to are blending onset rhyme and isolating the first sound because they're really the precursor to being able to generate rhyming and to break down that rhyming process. So, so let me give you a couple of examples. Um, so I already told you, isolating the first sound in sun, isolating the first, so you would say that with kids, listen, or listen, son, what's the first sound in sun? Very straightforward. Listen, mom, what's the first sound in mom? Mm. And when they can't do that, it's listen, mom, what's the first sound in mom? And then gradually, what the first sound in mom is, mm, just say it with me. So you have to go through this very explicit modeling and practice with kids. And then the inverse of that is, listen, mm, um. And you put that together, mm, um, mom. So those are the first two skills I would spend a lot of time on. Not that it's bad to do the rhyming, but those two are going to help you, are going to move you forward to being able to blend and segment. And then the next level would be what you were talking about, 
segmenting every single sound. I mean, if you can't say the first sound and mom is, mm, you're not going to be able to go. Mm, uh, Where do syllables mm. fall into that? Because what I find is that when kids jump ahead, I'm just curious. When the kids are breaking the one syllable words into three, you know, into the sounds and not mm -hmm. the syllables, but mm -hmm. they can have kindergarten, kindergarten. Yes. They yes. don't have the concept of syllables. So, well, in my opinion. And what happens with my students is then they are not able to segment because they are so confused. And so, and, and I'm just basing it on my experience yeah, of how yeah. you research this stuff. But yeah, so it's interesting to me because I've always followed, you have to have rhyming to understand the structure of language. And then you have to have, understand syllables to understand and then you move on. Right. To and so that has been common. That That's what a lot of people have, have assumed was the case, because we do know I mean, the studies originated from back in the 1990s. Um, it was a group of researchers at Florida State, Joe Torgerson, Rick Wagner and some other people who studied and looked at and how kids develop in these skills. And it was just a big assessment study. It wasn't an intervention. And they assessed lots and lots of kids. And what they found was that the typical um, sequence of development is you would learn how to say or you would recognize syllables within words. That's a really broad skill. And even underneath that, you have sentences, words within sentences. Um, to, to give you another example, um, with my, my older daughter, um, has language had a language disability and still does to some degree, but had a language disability and it was identified when she was three. And one of the things that was going on is she would run her sentences together and you couldn't hear the words within. It was almost like she was just mumbling through. And she went through a period of time where she needed to clap every word in a sentence because mm -hmm. her spoken language was a problem and right. that she wasn't saying those distinct words. So there are certainly some kids that you need to be sure that they have that level of phonological awareness in place, where they're aware that sentences are made up of individual words. And for some kids, you've got to do that very explicitly. And my daughter was an example. My other daughter, no, she just kind of got that. It didn't, it just developed very naturally. So that's kind of the lowest level or the first level of phonological awareness. And then at a higher level than that is recognizing that two words rhyme. So do these two words rhyme? But what I've found in my experience in doing our research over the years is that it's really hard to teach kids to rhyme. Um, and our, and our students with th those that, that really struggle and um, I know we were going to talk about it a little bit later, but I'm going to go ahead and pull in here. Um, some of my recent work is with kids with um, very low cognitive ability who have an intellectual disability. And teaching them to rhyme was just, it wasn't happening. And so what we decided, what, what ended up happening is we were working in our, um, in our intervention, and it was over the course of about four years with those same students. And for some of them, they never learned rhyming, but they did learn to segment and to blend, but it took a long time. But the language around rhyming is kind of tricky. So I, I that's a, excuse me. I think that's a good time when we need to be really explicit. I used to work in the schools, and the mm -hmm. teacher, one, first grade teacher, came to me one time, and she said, "And this is phonological awareness is my baby. I mean, that's mm -hmm. my passion. I've like mm -hmm. worked really hard with kids on all this, and and uh, so uh, she said, well, some kids just don't rhyme.'" 
I was like, oh no, you didn't say that to me. Give me two weeks with these kids and they will be rhyming and all, but bombardment, visuals, explicitly taught, what is rhyming? It's the same. Some kids don't yeah. even have the concept of same and different. You have to teach them the concept right. of same different. Right. You have to teach them rhyming. But I believe all kids can rhyme, um, aside from what you're talking about with the lower functioning. So yeah. Agree. Yeah. Hi, uh, regular, typically functioning children, all kids can rhyme. And I feel like it's a valuable skill to develop. But that's just my bias. Um, yeah, yeah. And I don't completely agree. It's more of a nuance and how you're going to intervene with kids and what you give priority to. Um, we do know from the research on phonemic awareness that the most the most important skills to teach are the blending and the segmenting. That those are the ones that correlate most strongly with reading outcomes. So, so those are the, the more critical ones to teach. And I would say it's great for them to learn to rhyme first. Just don't want to get bogged down in rhyming and then not get to isolating that first sound. And blending onset and rhyme is related to rhyming. Right. No, it's true. You know. Right. But my problem is then is when kids go to segment, they only do onset and rhyme and then they struggle. So if they don't understand rhyming. So from my experience, when I work strongly in rhyming and syllables, then the segmenting comes easier. So I do understand that it's most important. But that's just yeah, that's yeah. my experience. And with the rhyming, um, I just want to send that message because there's a lot of parents right now who are working with their kids on rhyming. And I don't want them to think it's not important because, I mean, in that as a background speech pathology, it's the whole foundation of our language. It's the it's the rhythm of our language. So to me, rhythm and rhyme, and we just disagree on that. But what's beautiful is you've found progress without it. So maybe in all reality, it's just yeah. for me, it gives them a more solid foundation, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. It's a good thing for them to know, for sure. And especially if it's in preschool, um, that it's a great thing for you to practice and learn and develop. Most definitely. And some kids get it pretty quickly and other kids need some more practice with it. So and I think that the, the part where we're totally in sync with and I want to emphasize to people is that you do need to get to a point where you can blend onset and rhyme and you can isolate the first sound in a word. Right. That, that's the next step. And how critical it is that they rhyme first, you know, we can we can quibble about because it isn't something that we know for sure from the research. We really don't know for sure. And I'm just basing it on, um, yeah, Torgelson's research as well. But yes, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there is language and they build right. on it, you know, and that we need to build on each thing. Right. So. And what Torgelson's research showed was here's what, how typically kids develop. And that's the lower, lower rung. So you're right. absolutely right about that. That's the, the lowest rung and that's where you start. But mm -hmm getting to that onset rhyme and then being able to say the first sound are, are very important. Um, I, w I wanted to kind of switch gears for a second because sure. this was a big thing that we talked about yesterday. Um, you have a dyslexic child. Mm -hmm. They're in, you know, say elementary school and they have a younger sibling who's not yet entered school. You're wondering, you know, is dyslexia there? Are they showing some of the same traits, some of the same signs that your older child showed? What are, uh, you know, seeing this younger child, what are some of the reasons for optimism and what are some of the reasons for urgency in um, addressing concerns and ensuring that the same issues are not experienced by that younger sibling? Mm -hmm. Sure. Well, as I said earlier, that the optimism comes from those research studies that show 
if you intervene early, the, the prognosis is really good. You, you don't have to be behind. I mean, that, that, I keep saying that because I just think it's really important that people get the message. You don't have to be behind. But the urgency comes with it's not easy to fix that. I mean, you have to intervene. You have to work at it. It's not something that that's just going to happen. You, you need to focus on that and make sure they're getting that um, that attention and that instruction as soon as they need it and not later, because it just gets harder to remediate. It's harder literally to remediate. And we know from even from the neurological studies for students that are older with dyslexia, it's harder to change those those brain patterns as you get older. I mean, it, they do change with intervention, but there's still some ways that their their brains are functioning differently. So I and, and the, the brain research is still um, in its relatively early stages. We, we know a lot, but there's a lot that we, we don't know as well. So um, I want to make sure that I fully answered your question. And I don't think I did. I got a little off track with our, my brain talking. Well, and maybe it's talk, maybe elaborate a little bit on how parents can help um, their preschool age child or their child that's getting ready or a child that's getting ready to enter kin kindergarten. Ashley, right. with a preschool age child. What am I talking about? <laughs> how? Because um, specifically, I have an example in my head, and it's mm -hmm. my girlfriend. Um, she lives in Austin. She's got three of the most beautiful daughters on the planet. Uh -huh. My girlfriend is dyslexic and, but she's really began this journey with her oldest child. Um, but she had this very young, you know, the third child was a very young child. Well, this, she really kind of started showing the markers at, at three uh -huh. and knowing what she knew now, basically after having gone down this road for several years with her older child, she, she's been doing a lot of work over the last two years. I mean, cause it started two years ago. I think she was three, two years ago. Now she should be five, but she started doing all of this work with her daughter and trying to help her enter kindergarten at a stronger point than right. her older child had. So right. I, when you and I were talking about that yesterday, she instantly popped into my head and I thought that that would be a great thing for us to sort of talk about today too. Sure, sure. So in those preschool years, you're really learning letter sounds, letter recognition, dealing with the shapes. I mean, you think about the a chair. If you turn it one way, it's a chair. If you turn it the other way, it's a chair. But if you turn the letter H around, it doesn't look like an H anymore. And if it's short, you've got the N. I mean, our letters, it matters which direction they go. So learning those shapes can be can be really challenging for any kid, much less a child that has, has a challenge with phonology and with print. So learning their letter names, learning their letter sounds, um, those are really key for them to do and providing that that kind of extra practice in a very fun, engaging way. Should definitely need to be fun and happy. Now, one of my most important messages to parents are, if it's not fun, stop. <laughs> just stop and try later. We'll do this again later. You know, you can just go ahead. Sorry, that reminds me um, when my daughter was four, she couldn't, we were doing the pre-kindergarten stuff and they send you the letter. They have to know these things and she couldn't learn her letters. We used the foam letters in the bath. Mm -hmm. The foam letters in the bath made all the difference because yeah. now, and we would introduce, you know, the foam letters in the bath. We'd play with the foam letters in the bath. We would use the, um, and then we would take the, uh, you know, those things you can write on with the, the soap pens in the bath. Yeah. Yes. So it took 
it, all of a sudden, he did letters out of the bath. It wasn't fun. We weren't having it. Letters <laughs> in the bath, you know. That and that's me. the thing with preschoolers. You got to kind of get yeah. them to go along with you and, and keep it fun and keep it engaging. They're a little bit different than a nine-year-old that you're going to say, okay, we need to learn this. Exactly. Let's practice this. Yeah. When they're little, it, it keep it fun. And, and the bathtub is a great time. I did more phonemic awareness activities when my daughter was in the bathtub. You know, it's a captive audience. They can't get away. And, you know, what is the bathtub in the car? Yeah. <laughs> the bathtub in the car. Exactly. I would go green, green, grass, grass. I mean, we, we did that kind of practice all the time. So mm -hmm. letters and their names and their sounds. Ideally, you know, the letter names. If I was talking to a child that's older, I really do focus on the sounds as more important than the names. There are some programs that really focus on the sounds. It's good to know the names. And in there, when they're in preschool, you definitely want to be teaching those names. So that's one area that's pretty straightforward. And actually, I think one of the easiest things to teach. One problem is with the vowel sounds. And because our vowel letters make different, represent different sounds. And in English, we've got 16 different vowel sounds, but we only have five, really seven letters that we use to represent those sounds. So what I would do is teach the most common sound for individual letters. And so we're pretty good at that with all of our consonants. But for the A, it's helpful to have a, a clue word of apple. And for the O, you want an octopus. So you don't want orange because the most common sound for ah is not the beginning sound in orange. Mm -hmm. So those alphabet books can be a little bit tricky. So when you're practicing those letter sounds, you need to be sure that you're making those sounds correctly. Um, the for E. You need to be careful what you choose. If you're from the South, you know, we have hens and pins and we don't say a real clear eh sound. No. So Ed is a great, I like to name our elephant Ed. So he's got a real clear sound. So I did A, E, I, E. I like to do icky. It's a real easy, I would have a word that you're good with and that you, you make sure with a speech therapist or kindergarten teacher, preschool teacher, that you're pronouncing those sounds correctly. The U is uh, and what did I miss? A, E, I, O, I guess I got all of them. So those five are really important that you teach the most common sound. Don't worry about every single yeah. sound we make, but just teach that most common sound initially and that will help. So letter recognition, letter sounds is one component, it's kind of one piece of the puzzle. Another piece of the puzzle is what we were talking about with rhyming and phonological awareness, isolating the first sound in a word, being able to blend the onset and rhyme, and eventually being able to say all the sounds in sun. Can I jump in real quick? Because please. I get kids all the time who can segment. They segment beautifully, but they do this. They say, ba, wa, a, ka for the word black, right? So they add a schwa on every consonant. Now yeah. there's only one reason a student would add a schwa on every consonant when they segment is if someone taught them with the schwa. Yeah. So yeah. I, 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 I say to everyone out there, when you're working on consonants, keep your hand right here to not allow to allow a schwa to pop out. So Perfect. Well, explain a schwa. Okay, I'm sorry, schwa is just uh, <laughs> So if, I'm sorry, I know. So if we say the, the sound for the K is K, we don't say K, because when we say K, 
we've added a vowel. We've added the U sound, the short U sound, which is a schwa. So kids will hear that. Now they don't know, is it one sound? Is it two sounds? It, it gets really confusing. So it's really important when we're presenting sounds and we're breaking them apart. B would be B. And I teach the kids to put their hand here and I teach them anytime. And anytime our mouth opens, we've said a vowel sound. So if we say ba, we've now opened our mouth. We've now said a vowel, a vowel sound with our consonant. So, and it's so funny when I used to do lessons in the classroom because I would teach the, the like I would go in and do a full, full class lesson for kinder um, first, second. And it would only take like a day and the kids are like telling the teacher, Teacher, you just you said you said a schwa, you know, and so they would remind the teacher, and but even you know they'll remind me sometimes too because we all need that reminder. So if we just hold our hand here and say b, we don't add that extra sound, and it's super important because it's super confusing to kids when we're adding an extra sound to the consonant. You make such an important point. I, I say that all the time when I'm working when I'm teaching my students who are mostly kindergarten, first and second grade teachers that are coming back to grad school. And we go over all of that because many times they haven't gotten that kind of specific content in their undergrad classes. Exactly. Um, it's it's really a shame the number of kindergarten, first and second grade teachers who haven't been taught exactly how to pronounce sounds in isolation because exactly. we don't say our sounds in isolation we say our sounds in words and yes, they're affected exactly. by the sounds around them there's a lot of complication to it it's not that straightforward right but not adding an uh sound is very important there's something mm -hmm. else and i have always like to tell this story this goes back like 30 years with a little boy that i was teaching to sound out and he was trying to sound out the word duh add so you can hear as a teacher what I was doing wrong because he was going da ada da ada and yeah. could not get to the word. Yeah. And that's a perfect example. And that's what happens. And now they're all confused because now we've exactly. There was another mistake I was making too, though. For him, he was still struggling to blend the sounds together. Mm -hmm. A better word for me to pick would be a word like mad. Mm -hmm. And the reason is because the M represents a continuous sound you can stretch. Mm -hmm. So in addition to not adding sounds onto your consonants, it's really important as for particularly for kids that struggle, that mm -hmm. when you say those letter sounds, you stretch the ones that can be stretched. Mm -hmm. So you can stretch the sound for the letter S. S mm -hmm. but you cannot stretch the sound for the letter T. Mm -hmm. If you try to stretch it, you're doing what you were doing. Right. Well, and the, the ones, and the ones that can be stretched can't have a schwa. You can't add it. You can't say sah. It doesn't make sense. It's right. only exactly. Yeah. So, so that's one a, of the things that if a child is struggling with blending sounds together, and it can be at the onset rhyme level or it can be at the sound by sound level, is to stretch and connect and to mm -hmm. choose those words that are really easy to um to blend and segment. And the ones that are easier are the ones that start with a continuous sound. And that don't start with a blend. Like I wouldn't do the word frog because no, a blend. <laughs> It'd be much better to do fog. Unless yes, fog has no idea what fog means, then right. it's better to choose something that they, they know that word that's meaning. Right. Which kind of gets me to my third piece of this puzzle. You know, so we talked about letters and sounds. We talked about phonemic awareness, just sounds and being able to blend those sounds together. Um, counting the sounds, like you said that a minute ago, you, you know, counting how many sounds do you hear in the word sign and being able to count those out. Those kind of things, that's two pieces of the puzzle. And another piece is definitely meaning and overall language. 
Um, for kids with who have those tendencies toward dyslexia or who have full-blown dyslexia, if you think about, have y'all talked about Scarborough's rope on Coffee Talk before? We've mentioned it, but we haven't gone in depth about it at all. No. So I'm so glad you're bringing it up. Yeah, the, the, it really has a, it's a nice visual and we can post it, um, a picture. It's all over the internet. If you just do rope model of reading, you'll find it. But the top part of the rope are all the strands that have to do, all the skills that have to do with language and meaning. And then the bottom half of the rope are all the strands that have to do with sounds and, and print and word recognition and figuring out the words. So the, the classic case of a child with dyslexia, they have a problem with the bottom and they're great on the top. So mm -hmm. their, their meaning system mm -hmm. is working wonderfully, but they're, they're having trouble getting the words off the page and they have a phonological problem. And this makes up oh, well over 90% of the kids with reading problems. They have a problem with the bottom half of that rope. Now, some kids also have a problem with the top half. Other kids may, don't have that problem. So it just kind of depends. But virtually every child with a reading problem has a problem with the bottom. And that's why we have to be so careful to explain that to teachers and how to teach that and teach it so explicitly with kids. But the top half of the rope cannot be ignored. And one of the things that we know about how reading develops is that a good reader makes connections immediately to meaning. So we've got to help kids make connections between phonemic awareness and the print and the sounds and also with the meaning, um, especially when you're doing this early with preschoolers. So to give you an example, when my younger daughter, who learned to read very quickly and easily, um, was learning how to sound out, she sounded out the word pop. Popcorn. She just immediately went to something that was meaningful to her. Mm -hmm. And that's what good readers do. You don't figure out the word and then make this later connection to the meaning of the word. It should all be working together. And the more you know a familiar, if you're familiar with the word, it's going to be easier for you to sound out that word. Can I jump in on that real quick? Please. Okay, there's research, as you probably know, that says when children can make close associations in general, Mm -hmm. then it affects their learning. So we play, uh, my students and I, but my kids and I forever, we play the association game where, so I say hot dog, they say the closest thing that comes into their mind. This is a great game for everyone to play with their kids because what you'll find out is some people don't make close associations. So sometimes I'll say, tell me the first word that pops into your head when, when I say hot dog. Some will say cat, some will say, frog because they're rhyming but mm -hmm. getting kids to make close associations first is important so we, we used to play the associate we call it association game and we would play it in the car so and we would go on and on and we'd have fun with it you know and so i encourage um, parents to see how your kids are making associations because if their associations are really far off from yes. what then they're not going to be able to associate what they're learning make that connection as easily Exactly. So, exactly. So the association game is a great way when you're on road trips or cars to make sure that everybody's kind of making close associations and um, that'll help with their learning as well. That's very, very important. One of the ways you can do this as a parent is when you're reading to your kids, have them find the letter S on that page, have them find a letter T or point to a couple letters that you know. So they're seeing that, okay, those letters that we've been practicing in our little puzzle, this is what they relate to. So you can help make those connections. And as you said, a lot of kids really struggle to make those connections and some struggle 
very mightily. This was one mm -hmm. of the areas for kids with um, low cognitive abilities that just honestly blew me away because most of my career I focused on kids with dyslexia. And I was really focused on the bottom half of that rope for the most part because that's where their deficits were. But once we started working with kids with lower IQs who might have a label of intellectual disability or what used to be called mental retardation, I was just blown away by how they could say a word in um, on a flashcard or identify a letter, but then would be totally lost whenever that same word or letter was in a book. And they, they just had more difficulty transferring skills, which is very similar to what you were talking about in making these close connections. And we have to help bridge that and help make those connections so they see that. But, you know, going back to your question about what do I do with my three-year-old when they have a sibling that has this problem, when you're reading, be sure you're pointing out those letters, helping them make those connections, that they're learning the letters, learning the sounds. You might occasionally choose a word when you're reading that you ask them, listen, or I've got a mystery word. Let me do my mystery word. Pizza. <laughs> And they find the pizza on the page, so they've heard for that. Do that type of thing. So I have I have three questions. Two of them are questions that have specifically come in, and then I have my question that I I would really like to ask you. But the first one is, it was based off of what you and Enid were talking about. What if they're making the wrong association? And I well, apologize. You, Black Lab is laying right here. Oh yeah, that's when you want to help. Guide them like so. I have those kids. They come in with the with like the most abstract, you know, association. It's and it's always clever, right? But they're just mm -hmm. not quite getting it. So we practice and we practice until they are making close associations. So I model it. So for instance, I have two daughters. One picked up literacy and language concepts extremely easily. The other one, uh, it took her four years to learn the difference between much and many. Um, it just it just didn't click with her as easily. So when we first started playing the association game, she was way off. So we would have to bring her back and say, well, this might be a closer association to that. And we would practice and practice. Now she's, she's the queen of the association game. So it really does take from what I, from my experience, it takes modeling them and showing them what a close association is, so they can start to try to make them. But you probably, I mean, that's just what, from my perspective, that makes great sense. That's a great advice. Um, some things you can do during the reading process. Another really wonderful um, approach for preschoolers is something called dialogic reading. Have you all talked about that on the show before? Mm -hmm. So dialogic reading is a, a evidence-based technique that was developed quite a few years ago, but it's to help kids build their language skills in the context of enjoying a book being read to them. So the book is being read to them and you're asking them questions, not so they can just answer a question and you're drilling them. Do you know the answer? Do you know the answer? Or even to help guide them toward the answer. The idea is that you're engaging them in a dialogue. So hence the name Dialogic Reading. And it's a wonderful approach. There's a really good resource on Reading Rockets that has explanation of Dialogic Reading. Um, and it helps kids talk about, you know, everything that's related to that book. That's what made me think of it whenever you were talking about making these associations, because when a child is reading a book, 
what a good reader does is they think about everything they know about that topic and they're relating that book to what they already know and they're making these connections. So this is helping kids verbalize that and engaging them in a conversation. And sometimes you do run around in a little rabbit trail off on a different topic and that's mm -hmm. fine, but it does things to help them build their ability to express themselves in a complete sentence. You can model sentences for them, expand on their language. It also builds vocabulary because you can highlight vocabulary and you can choose whichever kind of books you want. You don't, it doesn't have to be a particular book. Okay. The second question was, my friend's eight-year-old was sounding out beginning of words, but kept saying the wrong words. So uh, something was confusing to her. I'm assuming about what you were like saying. The guessing part. Like they go to, they sound out the first part and then they guess the word because they've been taught to guess in school. I'm wondering well, if that. And I think you've even, Nina, you've even said that about my own son, even with all of the intervention that he's had and with all of the rules and everything that he knows, he still sometimes applies what he's been taught through balanced literacy and he sees the first letter of the word and he automatically okay. guesses what the word is without actually using everything that he's been taught to decode the word. Your right. son is classic. So many of these students where it's it becomes the anxiety of a do I do it right thing because he has extremely strong phonological awareness skills from all of your interventions. Um, and so he, there's no reason, and he has phonic skills. So there's no reason he shouldn't be applying his skills in those contexts. And so it's a perfect example of, he is actually being hurt by the balanced literacy stuff because he has been taught to guess. And somebody else brought up context clues versus word associations. So context clues can be a brilliant thing. I use context clues when I'm reading to help me figure out a word. However, we cannot ask kids to rely on context cues and and um, looking at the word and guessing the word because that just creates really bad habits. So, um, so your son is one who's an example of really bad habits. So when we talked about, you know, what would be an appropriate intervention, unfortunately for him, it's a couple of phonics rules and breaking the bad habits. Yeah. And so that's what a lot of my students I get and breaking bad habits. So I want to make a couple of comments about that because the, the word that you said that I really want people to hear is rely. You don't want to rely on the context mm -hmm. to recognize what a word is. Mm -hmm. A good reader predicts um, as they're reading and, and you are going to, and you really do kind of narrow down your menu of choices. You know, if I say corn on the, you're going to think cob. Mm -hmm. because that's you're going to narrow down those choices and most likely but it could be corn on the car if you're at a farm stand in Iowa right. you know, there's it you have to use the print and a good reader relies on the print they don't rely on the well, meaning thank you for saying that they recognize words now when you're thinking about the meaning of the text, yes, you're always thinking about the meaning, but but you do use meaning some when we're recognizing words. And what, what it does is it narrows down the field of options. Mm -hmm. um, it also lets you know when you've made a mistake. So mm -hmm. if you've made an error, you're going to catch it because you're thinking, oh, wait, that didn't make sense. I need to go back and fix that. And good readers do that occasionally. But yeah. by the time you're a fully skilled reader, you're not making lots of little errors. That's what poor readers do. Right. You need to have the complete spellings of words in your mind. 
which is why this guessing thing is a real problem. Now, mm -hmm. I think a lot of the problem is the text that we put in front of that kids. Too. Mm -hmm. So if we put the text in front of kids, well, I can tell you a story when I was tutoring many years ago, was reading the book Quick as a Cricket. Actually, I had taken the child out of his regular curriculum because it was all stuff that would encourage him to do a lot of guessing. And we had used a lot of decodable books that had words in it that he could sound out. So we've been practicing that. He's actually really good at sounding out. And I thought, you know, I think it's time that we can pick up some of those other stories. So we pulled out the story Quick as a Cricket. Beautiful, beautiful book if you haven't seen it. But um, so he's reading along, doing fine. And he comes to the word cricket. And he looked at the picture and he says cricket. And he turns the page. He did not read the word. He saw what it began with. He predicted what the word was. And he's very bright. He figured that out. But I went back and said, OK, let's sound this out. And actually what I did was I put the book away and I chose words out of the book that we could sound out. Because he actually, even though cricket is a long word, you can sound it out if you sound oh, yeah. it out. Crick and kit. Yeah. So we he could sound out the word. So even if he hadn't had the picture and he just looked at the word, he could have figured it out. But it's so much easier to guess. But that's such and a good point. In front of you. They don't even know that they have the ability. And so it's mm -hmm. interesting because when my students progress with skills, then it's like, no, you have this. You can do this. But there's such a reliance on that guessing and such a, I can't do it. I don't have it. That there yeah. that it, it makes so much sense that they would rely you would use that, you know. Mm -hmm. that crutch in a way but it, but so mm -hmm. i love the way you explained all that because i think that's so important to understand is that these are things that we need to explain to the kids too that can be valuable tools for reading but that we don't want to rely on them and and so that i love the way you put that because i think sometimes there's some confusing things about balanced literacy and why we do it and i mean we don't do it why they do it um and and so and so the point is is um in in no ways am i saying it's good but what i'm saying is we, there is some value to some of it that we need to recognize as well from the perspective of, you know, this is something we still, so my point is sometimes when we're like so afraid of something, we want to get away from it and we want to, but that's a really good point. That's something, you know, to think about that we still need to be teaching these things, the balanced literacies based on, but at, a, at an appropriate time. Yeah, at an appropriate time, and we don't want to neglect meaning. I mean, it doesn't. We don't have to teach reading with nonsense words. We need to. It needs to be something meaningful, particularly from the beginning with with preschoolers and young kids. Part of it's the words that we teach, and then it's how we respond to kids during reading. Um, I would just to give some quick advice to parents: if your your child is reading to you, if they don't know a word in about two to four seconds. I would, and, and they're not trying to sound it out, then I would just tell them the word. Mm -hmm. Now, if you know that's a word that they know how to sound out, then you can model sounding it out for them. Mm -hmm. But if you're not sure, I would err on the side, just tell them the word. Yeah. So they look at that word and then always go back to the beginning of the sentence and read it again. Mm -hmm. Unless they're making mistake after mistake after mistake. And then you just need to pick a different text the next yeah. time. I mean, yeah. if it's just too many errors that it's getting frustrating. But that's one thing that my students have told me that they just felt liberated by when they, after they took my class and I would explain, this is how you should give feedback. They, um, they thought, oh, I can just tell them. And because they, they're sitting there thinking about the word. But if you think about what's going through in the child's mind, they're like, I don't know the word. I can sit right. here, you know, as long as whatever. Or even if I knew it yesterday, I have forgotten it. I can't think of that word. And you waste this instructional time and it's frustrating. 
as opposed to making a note, we need to practice this word more later and also just telling them the word and starting that sentence over. So then they can practice it probably three or four times by the time you, you just sat there feeling all frustrated and, and you want to, you want to, there's no reason for a child to be that frustrated. Yeah. You kind of think it like the way you, whenever you teach a child to ride a bike, they've got their training wheels mm -hmm. on. And what do you do initially? You run along beside them, especially whenever the training wheels are gone. You know, you run along beside them a little bit and yeah, they may crash and burn a few times, but, but you're giving them that support and you, you want to give them that support. And then the training wheels are really in the, what the analogy I like to use for a good book that you want to choose a book that helps them, um, that gives them an opportunity to practice those skills. I mean, I still remember my very first year teaching school and we had this wonderful lesson about learning the short E sound and here's some and, and practiced and did stuff. Then we got out our little readers. There were no short E words in the book. Oh my gosh. What sense does that make? <laughs> if you're going to learn the skill, you need to practice it in text too. Right. And we, we need to do a better job of making those things come together. And I, and I love how you say that because I, I know I personally have read so many articles over the last year about, you know, that's part of the issue with leveled readers is, you know, you may have a phonics lesson that focuses on a specific letter or group of letters, et cetera, but then you go into the leveled readers and that's not there. Yeah. And the words are too difficult and they're too challenging and it doesn't build upon the skill that you're being taught. So you're not doing that explicit systematic construction. Right. That mm -hmm. our kids, all of our kids, not just our dyslexic kids, but all of our kids really need in order to become skilled readers. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I got to piggyback on what you just said about all of our kids. I've been thinking I need to fit this into the conversation somewhere. You know, learning the bottom half of the rope, you know, these word recognition skills the ability to do that and how much support you need, it's on a continuum. It's not like you either have dyslexia or you don't. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a continuum of, a, of natural ability and of the wiring in the brain. And yeah, when you look at the extremes, you see a very, very clear difference, but you've got a lot of kids in the middle who, who need mm -hmm. a little bit of help, maybe not as much as the child that has a more severe case of dyslexia, but they need a little bit of help. And when you look at the percentages of kids who are not reading well, I mean, we're pushing 30, 40%. I mean, that's crazy. And, mm -hmm. they, and, and the most common issue is the bottom of the rope. It's not yeah. the top. For um, all kids, right. Mm -hmm. So it's <laughs> something that, as you said, every child needs. And even those kids who are really quick and high performing, what will happen, and this happened with my younger daughter, I would teach her step one. And the next thing I know, she's on step 10. It's like, how'd you get there? <laughs> so she figured a lot of things out on her own and she moved really fast. So you don't want to teach kids things they already know. Um, so that's not appropriate. But you do want to make sure every child is learning these basic sounds. Because what happens when they hit these multisyllabic words and you can no longer guess, they, they really hit, hit the wall, even if they've memorized a lot of words. Well, that's a really good point. Sorry, Ashley, but it's just the fact that if 40% of our fourth graders and our eighth graders are not proficient, mm -hmm. we know that 40, we're, it's not 40% dyslexic. So right. I'm just so glad you brought that up because I think we need to keep bringing this up that we are mm -hmm. all passionate mm -hmm. about dyslexia, but when 40% aren't reading that proficiency, it's an issue for a lot of kids. Right. Yeah. And when it comes to earlier intervention, I really don't care why they don't know what they're supposed to know right now. 
Right. They don't know their letters. We need to teach mm -hmm. them their letters. Mm -hmm. They don't, they can't tell me the first sound in a word. We need to teach them to do that. Mm -hmm. We need to expose them to lots of rhyming when they're three and four. Mm -hmm. That Those are the things If they're not able to do that, but well, we need to teach them to do that. If their language skills are low for whatever reason, mm -hmm. we've got to focus on that. And a good reading program is going to do all of that. But then you've got to know your students and are they reaching those benchmarks that they should be reaching? And we have very clear measures to determine that, even in yeah. person. Well, I was going to say there's two, um, they, there's some research that supports the idea that two language skills are extremely important, the, the, the most important for academic success. And it's the ability to be able to categorize. And my students, and this goes with word finding, which is a big issue with dyslexia. So <laughs> if you can't categorize your language, it's going to be hard for you to bring it about when you need it. So it's, it's crazy too. I get kids and I say, okay, tell me as many animals as you can think of. And they're like, cat, dog, you know, so the ability to be able to categorize. So I just, I, I, I yeah. encourage everyone for early intervention or, or any child, when you're at the grocery store, you're talking about all the different kinds of fruit. When you're, you know, out on the road, you're talking about all the different kinds of vehicles. When you're in your house, you're talking about all the different kinds of furniture. And I know this seems like something that would be obvious, but it's not. And kids don't have strong categorization skills. And when they don't have strong categorization skills, it affects their ability to recall information. And the other thing is the ability to be able to tell how things are same and different. They, this starts early and it goes all through school until from kindergarten to high school, they work on same and different. They work at comparing and contrasting. And every kid who comes and sees me has no idea what the word comparing is. They think it's telling differences. So clearly there's a challenge. And kids, when I when they struggle with comparing and contrasting, they come to me and, and I say, tell me how a dog and a cat are the same. Well, one has a tail and... <laughs> You know, there's just, it's so confusing. And they try to tell me differences or they, you know, tell me. And so um, it's, it's, those two things are things that can be worked on, talked about all day, every day um, with parents and their kids, early intervention or even uh, older kids, because it's a skill that really needs to be worked on. And um, it's something that can be just fun throughout the day, every day. Absolutely. Are there any other questions that people have asked that we want to follow up on? The, there are, um, and we're at the hour mark. Yeah. There's one question that I really want to ask you, though. Okay. Um, just just because it, it hits our own personal history so keenly, but you've talked a lot about preschool and kindergarten, et cetera, but specifically preschool teachers, how do we put a lot of this information into the hands of preschool teachers? Because they're not a lot, you know, they, they may not necessarily have an education degree or where they've gotten their education degree from. I mean, like you and I talked about yesterday, that varies across the universities, whether it's a balanced literacy type program or if it's a science of reading type of program, et cetera. But that being completely beside the point, how do we put this information into the hands of our preschool teachers? So can you tell us a little bit about um, your program that you? Sure, sure, absolutely. Um, and our program can be used with preschoolers. At, um, at SMU, we received a grant from the federal government to, to create an intensive intervention that's intervention and prevention, really. And I even had a, a mom contact me when we were doing the study who had a child with Down syndrome. And they started using our materials when she was still two, which I honestly, I told her, not yet, give it a little more time. But she started using it. 
And by the time her daughter was in kindergarten, which was the beginning of this year, she could already sound out short vowel words. She actually had better phonics skills than most of the kids in her regular kindergarten class, even though she had Down syndrome, has a is a disability. So it's exciting to see what you can do. So we have um, a curriculum, it's called Friends on the Block, and we developed it, a team of people at SNU. It was a large grant, and we piloted it with kids who had very intensive needs, including kids with intellectual disability. So if you're looking for something different, the, the main thing about it is we have 56 little readers, and we very carefully sequenced our words. So for example, the first words that we teach the kids to read are, I do not want like. So obviously you can put those together to have some sentences and I do not and I like and I do not like and do not want and adding some picture clues with that. Um, a couple of things that we've done that you could even do in um, with books that you have if you're reading in a decodable book or not is we use something that we call helper text. This is one of our little books and the teacher reads part of it. So one of the challenges with books in the beginning is you really need to do it with a child. And that's why people like the predictable books and you depend so much on pictures, but you wanna be able to tell that story and add to the meaning. So if your child's reading a decodable book and the meaning is a little bit unclear, because sometimes that's the case, add some storytelling to it. Because that's really what we've done with our readers is we've added a little storytelling component. And then over time, that scaffold gets less and less and less. So there's part that the teacher reads or the friend. That's why we like to call ourselves friends on the block. So the friend reads their part and then you read your part. And your part is limited to the words that you know and that you're practicing. And we divide our words between those you just need to memorize, like the word want, you cannot sound out want, and the words that um, you can sound out, like can, man, fat, sat, those kinds of words that are, are easy to sound out. And then we, it's very scaffolded and very gradual development. Um, we have lots of little games. When I was talking about phonemic awareness a minute ago, this is one of our sounds bingo games. So you would call out at, and then the child says cat, finds the picture of the cat, and you play a fun little bingo game. And you've been practicing phonemic awareness. So we've got tons of games, lots of books, and very explicit instruction for teachers to follow. So I'm really excited about this program and getting it out there to people. I'm actually thinking of the perfect student, my student for that. How would I go about getting something like, how would I get that? Go to our website. There's a lot of information there. It's friends.com. Okay, so we'll post that today. That'd be great. It, the way to tell where a child would start is with our um, word list. And I love it. You, you essentially just see where what words do you know? And if you don't know those words yet, you start in that level of book. It's extremely straightforward. Oh, I love that. And the words are divided between those that you that the kids have the skills to sound out and the ones that they don't have the skills to sound out yet, or they're words that are irregular, like the word want. I love it. That's wonderful. And so we need more very step by step. There are not a lot of resources out there. Um, for intellectually challenged. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. there, there really are not very many. And our we have case studies on the website if you wanna look at the, the students that have been through the, the program already. As mm -hmm. I mentioned, we started out 
um, studying it with those with very intensive needs. But I've been using it with my students have been using it with kindergarten, first and second graders who are strugglers that don't have any kind of um, label yet and, and some that never will. We've also been using with English language learners because there's a lot of pictures mm -hmm. and our, the words that we chose to teach them to read first are the words that you also speak early. Yeah, so love it. Very much related to your spoken language. We were real careful about that. And we had an entire team of people working on it. It wasn't just me by mm -hmm. any stretch. I mean, we had upwards to like 13 or so that worked on the project on and off over the mm -hmm. four years that we had the research grant. How exciting. And I'm happy to answer questions and point people to other information. I, I want my website to have resources on it for people outside of our program and happy to pass along things to you. So if there's anything that I mentioned um, that, that that somebody asked about, I'm very happy to provide resources. Reading Rockets is a great uh, resource I'm sure y'all know about. Yeah. So you might be teachers there. Another source I would point teachers to is the What Works Clearinghouse Practice Guides particularly the foundation guide. So it came out in 2016. The first author is Barbara Foreman and, and who now works for Joe Torgerson used to be. Oh, so, yeah. Anyway, so some real good connections there. Very nice. I was going to say another great resource you made me think of is Usborne Books. I don't know if people know Usborne mm -hmm. Books, but they mm -hmm. actually have a series called Ted and Friends. Oh. And um, the beautiful thing about Ted and Friends, it was written by a speech. The original one, the cat on a mat or whatever, was written by a speech pathologist, and it represents every single speech sound. Every single speech sound mm -hmm. is in. There. So nice. it's just, and they all rhyme. Um, they're really phenomenal for uh, K one two, but I just, it's a great resource as well for for you know for the students who are trying to decode and right. follow patterns every single speech sound represented so and it's good for you to bring up those programs because it's really hard to find books that give kids the practice they need when they only know mm -hmm. so much exactly you know, when you're at the very beginning it can be mm -hmm. tricky but the most important thing is to help them you know if they're stuck on a word help mm -hmm. them show them how to sound it out or if it's not one that can be sounded out or you don't know if it's one that can be sounded, just tell them the word yeah you, know, you go back to the beginning and keep it happy mm -hmm. but, that, that practice, I mean, the, the biggest differences between those who struggle and those who not is the need for it to be explicit and the amount of practice. Mm -hmm. You've got to have a lot more practice for some kids than others. Well, but once they have it, they have it. Well, right. and I was going to say that's a problem in schools today with every single one of my students. I say, are you reading at school? No, you're not reading with anyone. No, I fake read. I fake read during reading, they tell me, but nobody's sitting down with them and practicing and making sure their skills are actually, they're actually having an opportunity to um, practice. And so there's two options right now in education, put them on an audiobook and hope they follow along or have them fake read. So not one of my students practices reading at school. I find it really hard. So I'm just out there to parents. If your kid's not practicing reading at school, you want to make sure that's part of their program. Yeah. <laughs> they need practice. Mm -hmm. Definitely. So we have a lot of questions, but we're, we're at the hour 10 mark. Yeah. So we will um, we will answer all the questions that we can, um, but we're going to wrap up now. We're not going to abandon your questions. We are we are going to go through the comments and answer questions. So and let me throw in there, too. If you go to the Friends on the Block website, there's mm -hmm. a place to um, ask questions. Or Excellent. if you want more and for more information, feel free, any of you to go there 
fill that form out and I'll respond to you. If there's Excellent. too many, I'll eventually get there, but I will definitely answer questions. I love Excellent. answering questions. And yeah. we've, we've shared your website link. So um, Wonderful. that's, that's amazing. Thank you so much. Mm -hmm. So we're going to, we're going to wrap up here. This has been an amazing coffee talk. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you for your knowledge. You're willing to share everything that you're doing in order to help help everybody, help teachers, help parents, help help children. Thank you so much. Well, I've enjoyed it. Obviously, I love talking about this topic. <laughs> so, we'll have to have you back. I would love that. I would love that. Thank you Definitely. so much. Thank you. Thank you. Hope everybody has a really good weekend. Thanks. Bye. 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 Happy Saturday.